This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello. Today I'll be talking about the foundations of cooperative breeding and human evolution. Humans are arguably one of the most biologically successful species on the planet. Our success may be linked with our extraordinary ability to cooperate with one another. While cooperation is observed in many other species, human cooperation is anomalous in both nature and scale. We form long-lasting ties with both genetically related and unrelated individuals, and this cooperation is linked with reproduction. To interrogate this relationship and how it differs from that of great apes, we have to consider the reproductive challenges faced by our ancestors and the larger social context in which they unfolded. Around 7 million years ago, humans diverged from other great apes. At some point in our evolutionary history, perhaps around the time when our genus Homo evolved 2 to 2.5 million years ago, we evolved a number of distinct features that are associated with reproduction and parenting. Humans are one of the only mammalian species that has long-term reproductive bonds, though these are not necessarily sexually or socially monogamous. And we also allocate varying degrees of reproductive effort to paternal investment. In addition to these behaviors, female life history has several unique traits that help to define us as a species. A comparative understanding of the reproductive trade-offs and challenges that a human mother faces situates parenting and reproduction in an evolutionary framework, a necessary first step to understanding how cooperative breeding is central to the story of our species. Human mothers have a distinct life history compared to other primates and to other great apes. Many aspects of our reproduction are different. We have a later age at first birth, with cross-cultural averages suggesting that this is around 18 to 20 years old for many societies. A later age at first reproduction permits slower growth and over a longer period of time, a so-called slow life history. Mammals with slow life histories tend to have larger bodies, which means that they're able to produce more energetically expensive infants those that are larger bodied and larger brained. Humans certainly fall into this category and give birth to comparatively large brained and large bodied infants. Despite this, human gestation time remains average compared to other primates, leading many to argue that humans are secondarily altricial, which means that they're relatively helpless when they're born and a significant amount of postnatal growth happens outside of the womb. It's typical for species with slow life histories to wean their infants later and increase the space between births. Human reproduction is unique in another way because we exhibit the opposite pattern. We wean our infants sooner and have a decreased space between births compared to most other apes. Most mammalian infants are weaned when their first permanent molar erupts or when their weight reaches approximately one-third of their mother's body weight. Humans deviate from this pattern, and we wean our infants around two years of age, 
long before they reach this weight, which incidentally would be between six to seven years old in most populations. Early weaning then allows for a decrease in the time between offspring, a so-called short interbirth interval, because it allows mothers to return to ovulation sooner and begin reproducing. Human mothers have the unique ability to stack their infants, being responsible for multiple energetically expensive offspring who require different types and degrees of investment from provisioning to childcare. Weaning infants early while they are still nutritionally immature and cannot provide for themselves has important consequences for a human mother. In our evolutionary past, a mother would have had to rely on other group members for nutritional subsidies to support such a reproductive system. It's been estimated that it takes roughly 13 million kilocalories to raise an infant from birth to nutritional independence. The nutritional requirements of successfully rearing one child, let alone two or three, surpass what a mother is able to provide on her own, necessitating contributions from others. These contributions, which likely start in infancy with the provisioning of weaning foods, then continue into the extended period of development that we call childhood. This challenging task of caring for multiple dependent offspring with various needs is one of the distinct features of being a human mother, and it's something that other apes don't contend with. So the question is, how did this life history evolve in our species? And how did our foremothers do it? The answer is that they did it with help. This form of child rearing and of reproduction can be called cooperative breeding, a reproductive system where group members, other than the biological parents or alloparents, aid in the care and provisioning of young. This concept was introduced by Sarah Hurdy in her book, Mother Nature, first published in 1999, and greatly expanded upon in her book, Mothers and Others, first published in 2009. Many of us now use the term allomother to acknowledge that paternal investment in humans is facultative. The cooperative breeding hypothesis proposes that apes with the life history attributes of homo sapiens could not have evolved unless allomothers had help in caring for and provisioning young. More recently, other scholars have offered alternative terms to describe this human-specific pattern of cooperation in the provisioning and care of young, but the concept remains similar or is the same as that which Hurdy originally proposed. Hurdy has gone on to argue that this unusual mode of rearing young generated novel ape phenotypes subsequently subjected to directional selection that favored those infants who were better at monitoring mental states and intentions of others, successfully eliciting care. The result was an ape who was already socially intelligent, who was emotionally and cognitively pre-adapted for the evolution of higher levels of cooperation. The cooperative breeding hypothesis has had an incredible impact on scholarship being produced in a wide range of disciplines, ranging from neuroscience to human biology to social psychology. Scholars are now reframing the ways in which we think about the evolution of parenting and the evolution of cooperation in light of the cooperative breeding hypothesis. 
And much of my own work over the past 15 years has tested the cooperative breeding hypothesis and has explored who helps moms in different contexts and across different ecologies. Since 2004, I've worked with a community of hunter-gatherers who live in East Africa, the Hadza. This community represents one of the few remaining populations on the planet that still forages for a large part of their diet. This means that they collect plant foods and hunt game animals, and they couple these wild foods with other domesticated foods, like wheat, uh, that they get through trade, purchase, or donation. They live in tightly knit social groups, and they practice distributed childcare, making them an ideal population in which to study allo maternal investment or distributed childcare. And it helps us better understand what these behaviors look like cross culturally. Importantly, the children of this community also contribute to the household economy, which I argue, along with others, is a key feature of the story of cooperative breeding. Hadza children make important contributions to their household in a variety of ways. My colleagues and I have shown over a number of years and laid out in several publications that children not only take care of younger children acting as babysitters, but they also contribute in other ways. They do household chores, such as collecting water and firewood, and collect, process, and prepare food, both for themselves and others. They collect a wide variety of food, which ranges from figs, tubers, and berries, mainly targeted by girls, to small game animals like birds and monkeys, and honey, mainly targeted by boys. Given the important contributions that Hadza children can make, they're certainly offsetting the cost of their own care. So while children are being provisioned, they're also actively contributing to meeting their own caloric needs and those of others, both children and adults. Karen Kramer, another anthropologist who has studied the help that children can provide, has long argued that this type of intergenerational transfer of food is a critical and often overlooked component of human cooperative breeding. So what does this tell us? As these findings are in alignment with findings from different cultures and ecologies all around the world, we now have over 20 years of robust data collection from a wide range of societies that confirms that cooperative breeding, regardless of what you name this reproductive strategy, is a key feature of human evolution and one that distinguishes us from other apes. Based on what we know about human evolution, we know that a human mother's best reproductive strategy is a flexible one. The story of human mothering from an evolutionary perspective is a story of cooperation, as she must rely on assistance from others, a support network that includes a wide array of caregivers. We also know that there are a few key players or allo mothers who consistently rise to the top in terms of investing in young. These include the father of the infant, grandmothers, and other children, the category of helper who I've spent much of my career studying. And cooperative breeding still matters. While the constellation of caregivers may change depending on subsistence regime, ecology, or degree of market integration, the underlying theme is that help matters. This is true in our own culture, as well as in small-scale non-industrial foraging populations. Mothers across temporal and geographic space rely on assistance from a wide range of helpers. 
Despite increasing changes in demography and residence patterns throughout the world, aloe mothers, in whatever form they manifest, continue to provide for, nurture, and bond with children. Underscoring not only how central cooperative breeding is to the anthropology of reproduction, but also to what makes us and our reproductive lives distinctly human. I'd like to take an opportunity to thank all of my funding agencies and my collaborators, including the co-director of my lab, Daniel Benishek, and my doctoral students, Kristen Herlosky, Trevor Pollum, and Kaylee Meehan. I'd also like to thank my longtime collaborator and postdoc, Stephanie Schnorr, and my former student and current collaborator, Shana Lev-Levy. I'd like to thank my Tanzanian support staff, including Ibrahim Mabula and Shawnee Msafiri Mangola, and of course, the Hadza, who have been gracefully putting up with my intrusions for years. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.